What's up, everybody? We got another episode of the Caught Red Podcast for y'all today. I'm Jesse Light. I'm Megan Light. We are recording this episode Monday, February 6th, and this is episode number 27. Yeah, look at us roll. Seven months into this thing. Megan has another wild one for y'all today. But first, let's quickly get into some movie and TV shows. Some recommendations that we have watched this past oh. week. Oh, I wasn't prepared. Let me get my list out. I got you. So mm-hmm. let's see. We watched Wolf Creek, which is actually from 2005. Yes, we did. And I think somebody recommended this one to us a while back on Instagram, but I can't remember who it was. I feel uh, like I it was know. it was on one of, on somebody's list for like favorite horror movies of some sort. Well, we we watched that because we had first watched Rogue, which is done by the same director and writer who did Wolf Creek. So it was like a a lead into it. And Rogue, I liked Rogue. You did? I did. It's a uh, for those out there, it's about this American journalist, Michael Varton. I Missed the first few minutes, but pretty much he's out in Australia on some sort of assignment, I guess. And then he's got to kill time, so he takes a boat ride with a bunch of strangers, and there's a giant killer crocodile. It is your type of movie. It was. For sure. I was, well, I I might, I might, I might discourage some people from watching it. I, I was like, man, this is good. And then I instantly changed to giving it zero out of five stars. Because the freaking alligator, crocodile, whatever it is, I knew the dog was going to die. I knew it was going to happen. I just didn't know when. But the way it died. Oh, my freaking God. They literally show you the the croc crunching down on its not smiling face anymore. It was a cute little border collie, too. It it was. It had a half white face like Derby. Yeah, that was not cool. Fuck that movie. Yeah. But I liked it. I did. That one had a few people we recognized. So the the, the guy sheriff from, from Longmire was in it. Yeah, Longmire. For just like a few minutes. Yeah. I think he was the first person killed or one of. And then the Sam Worthington guy from the Avatar movie. Mm-hmm. Then the um, main lady, she was the wife in The Crazies, and we had just watched The Crazies oh, earlier yeah. that day. So we watched The Crazies as well. Yeah, that's think, another good, solid go-to. I think we've come to terms that that's one of our rewatchables. Yeah, we have to add it to our list. <laughs> but yeah, so both Rogue and Wolf Creek were like in the Australian outback. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that was different, but I didn't really like Wolf Creek, though. It had a potential. I liked it the kinda, idea behind it, but then it just... It made me mad because... They drug it out, too. They drug it out, and then the three main characters were just, like, asking to die. Like, every decision that they made, like, trying to go back to the dude's house. Yeah. And just get the hell out of there. <laughs> like, I know you're in the middle of nowhere, but come on. Yeah. Uh, but I did watch the first episode of Poker Face, and I think this is one that Megan is really going to like. Uh, the main character's voice kind of got on my nerves, but <laughs> that was really the only negative thing for me, and I, th- I think I could probably get over that. Oh, we can just mute it, and you can read the <laughs> subtitles. There you go. It might grow on me. Who knows? But the main character, Charlie, she has the ability to determine when someone is lying, and then I guess each episode has a new cast of characters, and then she's solving different crimes for each episode, it's not just the same characters every episode. Oh, you only watched the first one? Yeah, I just watched the first one, and it's got Adrian Brody in it. I like him. And it's the show is on Peacock, so I don't know how many people have Peacock, but I do recommend checking that one out. So have you ever seen Lie to Me? No, I don't it's think. It's got Tim Roth in it. It's a little bit older, but that's kind of what he does. He has a... Because he's not like a detective or investigator or anything like that. He's a consultant, and his specialty is body language and how to tell if somebody's lying or okay. playing that yeah, playing that role. Was, it was really cool. It's a good show. She was just working as at the casino, and then the head of the casino was like asking her to do 
some lying oh, or to cool. determine who was lying and stuff. So, and then she ended up solving a case. So, and then of course we watched episode three of The Last of Us. Yep. Which we need to catch up and watch for tonight. Yes, we do. I'm excited. Hell yeah. Are you going to mention that you're now a really, like, really real official member of the family? Why? Because you watched Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Oh, yeah. You were going to forget? I did forget. Yeah. (laughs) I approve of it. Good. I always thought it was going to be stupid, which, I mean, it is. It is. It's supposed to be. It was entertaining, so. It's supposed to be dumb. It's a B-movie. It's... But it's good. It's a cult classic. Now you can see why. Yeah. Well, with all that being said, you ready to do this thing? Oh, Lord, I think so. Let's get into it. So my case sources for today is Kentucky Tourism, davissky.org, the prosecutor's podcast, which I now subscribe to them. I, I like it very much. Uh, Death in the Dorms, it was a Hulu series, and it's season one, episode six. We got healthcare.utah.edu, the WKU Herald, Kentucky.kvc.org for foster care, Western Kentucky University.edu for their housing. Then we got the University of Rochester Medical Center. Then I've got Kentucky Corrections, Firehouse.com's article called Close Calls, Bluegrass by William Van Meter, TheCinemaholic.com, and then there was a lot of articles from TheSun.com. For this week's episode, I'm going to cover a listener recommendation. Erica Brown requested a case that is a local for her. Thank you, Erica. Yes, thank you very much. I hadn't heard of this one until she messaged us about it. Erica gave like this like little short synopsis and I was like, that's it. That's all I need. I'm going to go down the rabbit hole. Some of you may be familiar with this one because other podcasts like the prosecutors have covered it. It was featured on an episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn. It was uh, season three, episode three, A Voice in the Dark was the title. I have read and heard that she kind of whitewashed and didn't include some essential information so i'm not sure how great that episode is i haven't seen it because you have to actually buy to watch it and i was like no i'm fine but that hulu series the death in the dorms literally came out a month ago so it was perfect timing this case suggested is that of katie autry who in 2003 fell victim to a horrendous death erica attended the same college where katie was killed which is western kentucky university Erica also lived in the same dorm hall, Hugh Poland, where the crime took place. Erica said that the dorm has been completely remodeled since then, but I still, I can't imagine that like eerie feeling knowing that something so heinous took place where many students have lived and are still living. So again, thank you, Erica. And here we go. I do want to give a little bit of a warning for the episode. Some of the, of the things that Katie goes through, they're really horrible So here is your heads up when it gets to that point. Explicit. Explicit. Katie is actually Melissa K. Autry, and Katie was her nickname. She was born on June 10th, 1984 in Davies County or Rosine, Kentucky. They're two different towns. Davies County is what's on her find a grave, but she was buried in Rosine, and I think I'm saying it right. I don't know. Somebody can correct me later. Maybe Erica. And from what I gathered, uh, Rosine is kind of like Wooster, like one of those towns that you blink and you've just driven straight through it. Their town's consensus said that 106 people lived there in 2020. That's really small. That, I mean, that's way smaller than us here. Davies County, on the other hand, is like a metropolis in comparison. Davies County is a leading center of the production of distilled spirits like Kentucky Bourbon. The economy there was bloomed from that, and then they had coal mining there as well. Even if you didn't know Katie personally, you could see the type of person that she was going to be. Her rough start to life didn't stop her from reaching any goal that she set her mind to. Katie was born to some not-so-suitable parents. She never knew her father, and her mother, Donnie May, was suffering from mental illness. She had schizophrenia. 
Katie, I've read between the ages of 8 and 10, was put into the foster care system with her younger sister, Lisa. And Lisa is actually her half-sister, and then Lisa's dad is in prison. But before entering, Katie was having to act more like the mother figure to her sister than actually being her sister because their mother just wasn't capable of caring for them. And the girls would bounce around from different foster homes until one finally would stick. The girls would end up living in the home of Jim and Shirley Inman in Pellville. These two cared for the girls as if they were their own. It was the structure and the support that they needed, and the girls would just thrive under the Inman's roof. It was this stability that allowed Katie to achieve so much in such a short amount of time. Her achievements are a mile long on her memorial page, and just to name a few, she was in Beta Club, Spanish Club, Reading Club, Honor Roll Student of the Month, Who's Who Among American High School Students, she had perfect attendance, and she had cords for above average testing scores. Not to mention, she was a busy little bee. She was a cheerleader, and uh, by all accounts, and then pictures of her, she's like this cute little petite blonde, so it was a natural fit that she was the team's flyer, the girl that gets thrown in the air, you know? Doing flips and shit. Doing flips and shit, yes. She ran track, was on the pep squad, and she was an active member of her youth group. The she was it, doing all kinds of stuff. She was. Wow. She, she went from foster care kid to this young teenager on her way up in the world. The Inmans were very religious, which meant they were strict, but that is what Katie needed in her life. It was her determination that many remembered because in a town like theirs, there wasn't going to be a lot of opportunities unless you got out. Katie had a dream of being a dental hygienist. And as the prosecutor said in their podcast, it was a white collar kind of job, which is different from the life that she was brought up in. Katie attending college was a big deal. She would be the first in her family to do so. According to her cousin Barbie in the Hulu episode, she said that up to that point in time, she believes that only one of their family members had actually graduated high school. Wow, that's crazy. When she decided on a school, she chose Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green. And Bowling Green is about an hour's drive away from Davies County, but it was still also close enough to both the Inmans and then Katie's birth family, whom she'd gotten closer to as she grew older. Katie started her freshman year in the fall of 2002, her venturing out on her own was the first time that she could really let loose. Since living with the Inmans, I'm sure she no longer had to be that mother figure to her sister, but I doubt she ever stopped. She was no longer under the strict rules either. She was free to enjoy her life as she pleased. She was excited to be in a new place and to have the chance to meet new people. Like most that leave the nest for the first time, Katie, quote unquote, branched out as we say in the lighthouse. And when I say branched out, I mean her preference of men was a little frowned upon. Her being this cute little blonde white girl had an attraction to black men. But thinking about it, she was raised in the foster system and she was probably a lot less biased. And nowadays, we're just like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. But 20 years ago, in a state that is considered the South, it just didn't sit well. So much that her and her first roommate in the dorms would argue over it. And another reason that her and the roommate didn't get along was Katie's reputation. She did sleep around. She earned the uh, not-so-nice nickname of the hoe from the second flow. She was described as a people pleaser, so that plus her childhood, maybe she thought that was a way to get attention. And she did. It just wasn't, you know, the right kind. That maybe li living in a religious household, she wanted to rebel a little bit once right. she got out of it. I would think so, yeah. But in the end, it, it all worked out well because she would end up switching roommates and the girl that she ends up rooming with, the new roommate, I mean, it was meant to be because she was having problems with her roommate. Katie was having problems with hers, so they switched, and it was like a match made in heaven. That happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, I switched roommates after the first semester, too, and it was way better after yeah. that. Ugh. Her new roommate becomes her confidant, her BFF, her sister from another mister, whatever you want to say, that was her. Her name was Danica Jackson, and Danica is biracial, so the whole dating thing, that didn't bother her. 
But some of the treatment that Katie would endure from her male suitors did, like from her quote-unquote boyfriend Maurice. And Maurice and Katie, they dated and they slept together, but he would never be just exclusive with her. And like poor Katie, she just had to practically beg him for one of his t-shirts just so she could sleep in it. And when he did finally give her one, she was said to have worn it every night, even on her last night. And the main reason that he was this way towards her is because he had a girlfriend that lived out of town. And Danica hated this and the fact that he was just like more or less using Katie for convenient sex. Come on, bro. Thankfully, despite her taste of freedom, Katie was still the same ambitious young lady. She decided to take matters into her own hands and truly be fully independent, meaning that though she was only 18 and a legal adult, she was still under Kentucky's foster care system. A child in welfare care can remain in the system until the age of 21. Really? With, I yeah. I didn't know that. I don't know if it's every state, but for Kentucky, it's this way. Okay. With, with this, someone like Katie could have their state college tuition completely covered. Seriously? How, Dude. However, Katie wanted to be emancipated. She lost her funding by doing so. She dropped from full-time to part-time, and she had several jobs. She didn't want to be in debt when she graduated, so she worked at a smoothie shop that was on campus, and she did strip for a short time at a place called Tattletales. <laughs> do what you got to do, I guess. Right, and I'm sure I'm sure she did well because she was a sweet young thing. I'm sure they were like, hey, it was Katie. A big college town like that, too, because mm-hmm. Bowling Green's there, too, right? It's in Bowling Green. Well, the, the college Bowling Green. Oh, I didn't know there was a college name yeah. from Bowling Green. Interesting. I just focused on this. I didn't spread out. My bad. After hearing the type of person Katie was, it makes what happened to her even worse. It was that time of the year where students are preparing for the end of the semester, studying for finals, finishing up their last papers. There were quite a few end-of-the-year parties happening. On May 4th, 2003, in the dorm hall of Hugh Poland, a smoke alarm sounded at 4 (laughs) a.m. Ripley. Quit being a bitch. Rippy. Ripley Light. You good? Creature. On May 4th, 2003, in the dorm hall of Hugh Poland, a sound started going. Is that where she lived? Yes. In that dorm? It was the smoke alarm, and it was going off at 4.08 a.m. It really wasn't that big of a deal. It was a dorm, and the residents often caused fires. Normally, they're very small, like someone brought in a hot plate and burned a meal, burned popcorn, candles going, or some punk ass pulled the fire alarm. You know, something small like that. Right. Mainly, the alarm was just an annoyance for everybody living there. It was a co-ed dorm, but they would have no idea what just happened in room 214. What just happened? I'm getting to that. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) First responders locate the source of the fire there in room 214, and when they entered, the sprinklers had done the majority of the work. The fire was out. Lingering was cold smoke, which is the term used when smoke has lost its velocity and it's just smoothly flowing after being a fire being put out. Okay. But then one of the firefighters noticed that something he saw, he described it as glistening on the bed. It was pitch dark. But that caught his eye. And that glistening thing was an arm that was untouched by flames. He was in shock and he was caught off guard. And then he saw movement, unaware that it was a person. What he had seen was the chest of this individual trying to rise, trying to take its breath. Whoever this person was, was still alive. Katie was still alive. Oh my gosh. Another firefighter took off his mask and gave it to her, giving her oxygen as they rushed her outside to EMS. It was here where the residents of the dorm, some grumpy, some hungover, got a rude awakening. The fire they all just assumed was like any other time that they'd been rushed outside was actually Katie. She herself was the source of the fire. She was taken to Greenwood Hospital there in Bowling Green, but is later med-flighted to the burn unit at Vanderbilt Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. 
which by car is an hour away. So that's that's a quick trip by helicopter. What the hell happened? Inspecting the scene, the firefighters noticed that around the sprinkler was either a blanket or a sheet. Someone had either tried to keep the heat away as long as possible or tried to keep the water from coming out at its normal rate or both. They noticed that her smoke alarm in the room had been removed. Once Katie arrived at the hospital, the medical staff just could not comprehend what was going on. They knew immediately there was no accident. As they tended to her, they discovered that she had upwards to four stab wounds in her neck. She had been found with a t-shirt tied around her neck, maybe as an attempt to choke her. I also read that it was more like covering her face, which did help save her from dying from smoke inhalation, but I doubt that was its purpose. Holy shit. She was swollen and starting to bruise due to severe beating. She had a black eye, and it looked like the left side of her face was dented. And she was still alive at this point? Yes. Besides the shirt, there was a curling iron wrapped around her neck, but I also read that it was around her feet, so I don't know if it was neck or feet. Katie had been placed in a medically induced coma. She was burned from her inner thighs up to her breast near her neck. Interesting enough to me when I was reading that she was only burned on the front side of her body. It didn't extend to the back or her extremities. So she was laying on the bed, probably asleep when somebody came in? Well, you'll find out. Katie had a belly button ring, according to her cousin Barbie, that she got, and she got that with a tattoo when she got her first taste of freedom, and it had melted into her her abdomen. Whoa. I thought you were going to say somebody ripped it out or something. That would still be painful. Her burns were rated as third and fourth degree. Third-degree burn goes deep into the fat layer that's right underneath your dermis. So you've got epidermis, dermis, and hypodermis for your layers of skin. So some of her burns went past that third bottom layer. Fourth-degree burns go through the layers of skin and the underlying tissues and can reach muscle and bone. The only good thing about reaching that point is that there are no longer any nerve endings that can allow you to feel pain But you know Katie was in pain. Over 40% of her body was burned. The coma that the medical staff put her into was a godsend, and she didn't have to feel anything anymore. The burns were focused around her genital area, which made it difficult for the staff to put a catheter in because the area of the body to insert it was burned away. Wow. Katie would have procedures done that doctors would... uh, do slits in her flesh just so her chest could rise and fall and allow her to breathe better. So I was curious about those procedures and I looked and on the University of Utah's burn center page, there's five types of burn surgery procedures. The first one is amputation, which we all know what that is. The second is a tracheostomy, which is when the surgeon cuts into her neck and does the breathing tube. Katie had one. There is the third one, it's called release, and that releases scar tissue to allow better range of motion can require skin grafts. And I would assume that Katie was getting skin grafts to help cover the exposed flesh and keep the the chance of infection out. They did the second one, even with stab wounds in her neck? Well, I don't know if, she, well, she, it says she had a breathing tube, so I don't know if that was through her oh, mouth or if they okay. cut into her neck. This is just, that was just one of the gotcha. burn surgery types. The fourth one is a fasciotomy, which is when they cut into the fascia to relieve pressure and increase blood flow. And this last one, number five, is So many big words. I know. I'm going to have to take a second. Hold on. Is escaotomy, escarotomy. I'm not sure if I'm saying that one right. Um, But that is when they cut, again, just like they did before, like the fasciotomy, but they cut to relieve pressure and return blood flow to an area. So the fasciotomy is to increase blood flow, and this one helps the blood flow return back to the area. Okay. I just thought those were interesting. Three days later, on May 7th, her body would succumb to her injuries and she would pass away. 
Her cause of death was labeled as complications of thermal burns with blunt force trauma to the head. When her autopsy is performed, the medical examiner concluded that hairspray was the accelerant. The ME also found hand sanitizer like Purell or Germex inside her vagina. What the hell? It seemed to be a desperate hope to get rid of any evidence. There had been a rape kit done on her body as well, and it, it went to prove that the jail did not do the job that the attacker had hoped it would. What was the blunt force trauma to the head from? Do you know? Well, she had like an indention, they said, on the side. But I don't know if they were able to like Found figure it. out what it was. Oh, okay. I never found anything like that. How did Katie end up in this situation? How could this horrible thing be done to her and who could have done it, right? So that's the million-dollar question. May 3rd, so the day prior, Katie and Danica spent part of the evening pre-gaming in their dorm. There was a party at the Pike House, which is not too far off from the campus. I looked on the campus mat, and from where their dorm is to the Pike House, it looked like four or five buildings, give or take, in between, which is some... Close, it was close enough that they could walk there, like, without a problem. Is Pike, is that a fraternity? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay. It's a fraternity on their campus. It's just one of several. When the girls arrived, they were both pretty intoxicated. Apparently, they were making mixed drinks with something like Everclear. Oh, no. Oh, no. But Katie was more intoxicated of the two. Like I stated earlier, she's a flyer. So she's a little girl. She's like 100 pounds soaking wet. Yeah, you're drunk off two beers. Yep. So. The drinks hit her harder than Danica. Like a lot of girls, Katie was an emotional drunk, acting dramatic at times. Danica had to often babysit her. This night, Katie had asked her boyfriend, but I call him a fuck boy, mm-hmm. Maurice, to come mm-hmm. to the party. He didn't want to, but she ended up convincing him to show. He gets there, and at some point, she wants to dance with him, and he didn't want to do that. She gets a little violent with him. She slaps him. She started a scene, and some of the other brothers of the fraternity were like, hey, you got to go. Danica was not thrilled because while this is all going on, she's over here in the corner cozied up with some guy. She was having fun, and she didn't want to leave. But luckily, at this party, just like others around the frat community, pledges remain sober, and they're the DDs. Ryan Payne, who was a pledge, volunteered to drive Katie back to her dorm. Danica had known Ryan from around school and classes, and she was comfortable with this. So around 1.32 a.m., Danica let Katie go with Ryan, and she said that she would call Katie later and make sure she made it to their room safely. Near 2.30 that morning, so phone records say it was 2.26, Danica does as she's promised. She calls to check in. Katie answers and told her that she was laying in bed, but she was scared because there was a guy in her room, someone she didn't know. As a ballsy move, Danica's like, give him the phone, let me talk to him. And the man on the phone said he was the guy that brought her home, and with her being so drunk, he wanted to make sure she got to her room safely. He gave the phone back to Katie, and Danica said, hey, I'll see you in the morning. The call lasted for two minutes, so it ends at 2.28. But here's the catch. Danica could have sworn she heard a second male's voice, and she didn't think either one of them sounded like Ryan. Trying to remain logical, Katie was taken home by D.D., and maybe there was another passenger, and this other guy helped Ryan bring her back into the room. While on the phone, the unknown male said that Katie had gotten sick, and Danica was like, make sure you place her on on her side in case she throws up, she won't choke. At that moment, Danica didn't realize that Katie could be in danger. But as we know, she was wrong. As Katie was fighting for her life, the police and arson investigators were starting their search. The whole building was declared a crime scene. Students, when they were let back into the rooms, were in fear that whoever hurt Katie was still around, so a lot of them would put chairs against the door and create a wedge. One thing that has been agreed on throughout the investigation was the mistake to allow the campus police to take lead. The campus police was under Chief Robert Dean. He was hired on January 31st, 2000, and before that, he was a homicide detective in Detroit. 
He may not have been a stranger to this type of crime, but the department as a whole was just not prepared. At the beginning of it all, multiple agencies were involved. We had Kentucky State Police, Bowling Green, the campus police, and even the FBI. It was decided among them that the campus police will take charge. The first thing to do was to start interviews. Investigators need to know Katie's whereabouts prior to the fire, so they start with Danica, who starts with all the details. She walks them through the events of the evening, the party, the drunken fight, Katie in the ride back, talking to her. And then, of course, she mentions that I think I heard two voices in that room. Ah, the suspects. The police need to figure out who were those voices on the other end of that call. They had spoken to Maurice and other witnesses. They ruled him out. The next focus would be those who were closest to Katie physically around that time window. The investigators begin with interviews of the residents of Cuke, Poland, especially, most importantly, the RA. Just talk to Danica and then talk to Ryan. That's all you got to do. Well, there's more people. Yeah, but I feel like it would lead straight to the two people that were in there, but... Okay. Just like the timeline Danica had established, the RA told the police that it was about 1.32 o'clock when Katie arrived. The RA said she seemed fine and that she was alone. And I don't know what their process is for residents coming and going and their guests at that time. And not to get off track, but it is relevant After Katie's murder, the campus will take a better look at their security and make major changes. Now, students must check in all guests by leaving their IDs with the desk staff, who will make a record for the building's logs. Not to mention, instead of using a key, the students can unlock the doors now with their ID cards. No real leads came from the RA, so the police decide to change direction and they look for Ryan Payne, the DD. He was living in a dorm called Bemis Lawrence Hall, which has been torn down sometime between 2003 and now. And I was trying to figure out where it was on the campus mat. And I think it might be the Southwest Hall now, but somebody can correct me. I wasn't sure. Investigators ask about the events, see if things are lining up with the other counts that they have heard. Ryan tells them, yes, I drove Katie home and she did walk in alone. He said that he never spoke with her roommate because he had more stops to make and then he went back to the Pike House. When he got back to the Pike House, it looked like the party had fizzled out and he was no longer needed. He met up with some friends. They played video games till like 5 a.m. His friends were like, yes, he was with us. I don't know about like what time he got back to the Pike House, to the party. I could never find that, but otherwise he checks out. But here's where it gets a little hinky. Ryan admits that there was somebody else in the truck, but only after the police let him know that they knew this. Ryan, for whatever reason, neglected the information. He goes on to say that he doesn't have his own car, so he had to end up borrowing somebody else's truck to take Katie home, and in this truck was this other person, Stephen Souls. And I will tell you more about Stephen here in just a second. Continuing with Ryan's account, he said that Stephen was starting to come around when he was about to leave with Katie, so he joins them up in the front of the cab, so it's Ryan and then Stephen riding bitch in the middle, and then you got Katie in the passenger seat. Ryan drops Katie off. He watches her go into the building. At that point, Ryan says Stephen gets out to go holler at her. Ryan was supposed to take Stephen elsewhere to another dorm hall, but... After he gets out of the car, he can't just wait around for him to come back because he has duty to pick up others and transport them, so he leaves. Stephen Souls is not the best guy. He is a member of a group called the Scottsville Crew, named for the city that he lived in. He's a 19-year-old mixed man. He doesn't go to western Kentucky, but he has friends there. Besides being a liar, he is also known to be a bit of a klepto, He is a bit of a leech, like attaching himself and just taking advantage. He's a punk. Stephen had every intention to attend the Pike party with friends, but like I said, he had gone too hard, too quick, smoking and drinking that he passed out. Before the party, him and a couple of friends were going to go buy some weed, and Stephen knew of a guy named Luke. Luke Goodrum is his last name. When Stephen calls, 
Luke isn't home, but Luke's roommate's like, hey, I'll let him know you called when he returns. Luke got back home later, called Stephen back and agreed to meet him at a bowling alley. Luke knew that Stephen liked to steal stuff, so he refused to let him come over. So let me introduce Luke. Luke Goodrum is 21. Like Stephen, he doesn't attend Western Kentucky, and he does have friends that go there too. He's a lowlife. He's a punk too. He's a drug dealer with a history of knocking around girlfriends. In fact, when Stephen had called him earlier that day, Luke had just had the cops called on him by his roommate because Luke was beating up his girlfriend. So he leaves before the police can arrive and lay low around town until things settle down and then he went back home. And that's when his roommate was like, hey, Stephen called for you. And this is just a fun little fact. Luke's stepfather is the grandson of the founder of all the Dollar Generals. And it started there in Scottsville. So he's like, Luke is like rich adjacent, as I like to say. But he lives with his birth father in Bowling Green. So he has nothing to do with his stepfather and that side of the family. Huh. I was just like, that's cool. Around the same time that Katie and Danica were getting ready and pre-gaming, Stephen was doing the same. Stephen was over at a friend's house. Her name is Sarah. And a few more of their buddies are over there. And they're all going to go to this pipe party. Here is where he was when Luke calls him back. They meet up. Luke goes back to Sarah's house with Stephen. They all drink and smoke. And then as a group, they all go to the pipe party. Of course, we know that Stephen doesn't make it inside. Katie and Danica are in there. Katie is removed and given a ride with Ryan and with Stephen in the truck. So Stephen is slowly coming to at this point. And during the party... Luke and a couple others end up walking to Bemis Lawrence Hall. And this is where, after Katie is dropped off, that Ryan is supposed to take Stephen. Because when he takes Stephen to Bemis Hall, he's going to pick Luke up and take Luke back to his car at the bowling alley. So Stephen should have been at Bemis at 2.15. We know this because the RA of that hall saw Luke waiting in the lobby at that time. So Ryan shows up 20 or so minutes later. He picks Luke up. Luke goes to a convenience store, and then he makes it back home to his father's house at 3 a.m., where his father is waiting up to get on to him. So here is the quick timeline, and then we'll move on, because you looked at me. (laughs) Katie arrives alone, verified by the RA that sees her get into the elevator between 1.30 and 2, I'm thinking more of the 2 part of that. Danica called and spoke to Katie and the unknown male at 2.26 to 2.28. Luke is seen at Bemis at 2.15. And I bring him up again because it becomes necessary later. Ryan picks Luke up at 2.38. Luke is at a convenience store at 2.40. We know because a receipt said so. Luke is home at 3, fire alarm is sounding at 4.08. All this is the bright early mornings of May 4th. So did Stephen follow her up to her room? We're getting to there. Because how would he know which room she was in? Okay, so that's part of one of my theory, my theory at the end. So I'll, okay. we can talk about that at the end. Because if you said the RA saw Katie, right, mm-hmm. and go up to her room, she didn't see Stephen? No. So we can talk about that in a minute because because I have some unanswered questions. And then I, in the shower earlier, I came up with a theory. So, <laughs> okay, so we got the timeline established. Later that day, around 7 a.m., there is a guy. His name is Brian Hitches. He wakes up and he finds Stephen asleep on his couch. Now, Stephen called Brian at like one in the morning and asked if he could have a ride. And Brian was like, no, man, I'm not coming to get you. So when Brian wakes up, he's like, how are you in my house? And Steven says that he walked from the campus. I don't know if he said a dorm name or the pie cows. And Brian didn't ask these specifics. He was just like, why are you here? But I did find this humorous because out in the front yard of Brian's house is a child's, it was either purple or a pink bike. <laughs> so along the way of Stephen walking to his house, he stole some kid's bike. So there is a crying little girl at some house along the way. Brian gives Stephen a ride back home. 
where he will proceed to undress and get cleaned up. I'm going to tell you here that Steven's shirt has poo on it, and that's all I'm going to say for now. Oddly enough, he decides to hide this shirt, and then he goes next door where there's an empty lot and he hides some jewelry. Investigators learned that some of the Scottsville crew was at the party, and since Ryan had told them about Steven, they got some pictures together. They had Steven's picture, some known associates from the crew, and they go to the RA of, of Katie's dorm. And she looks through them. She doesn't reckon any, recognize anybody. And she said she had never seen them before. Ryan, since he's one of the last men to see Katie, is asked by the investigators to submit a DNA sample to be used against the rape kit. And he does. I said earlier that Stephen is a liar. And after this, it seems as though it's like a compulsion for him. He just cannot help himself. He has to lie. He will tell the police multiple versions, always changing some little bit of detail and these stories will start on May 7th, so the day that Katie passes. Stephen, who lives with his grandmother, is questioned by the police there. They obviously tell him that we know you were in the truck, what happened, what was going on that last time you saw Katie. And he, he tells them there's no girl in the truck and that he was at Bemis where a friend of his picked him up. Later, they go to that friend and the friend's like, I was never with him. He said he wanted to be loyal to Stephen, but he wasn't comfortable with how Stephen kept changing his story and lying. So he was a good man. He stepped up. At some point, Stephen had told his dad that he slept with Katie and it was consensual. So his dad rats him out and calls the police to let them know. So they bring Stephen in for questioning. He's trying to sound like the good guy. Stephen said that he wanted to make sure she got to her room safely and that she invited him up. You already lied once, so... That's just the first time. But here is a really strange detail that he added, that Katie took the elevator, which we know, the RA said so, but he took the stairs, which are not visible by the front desk. So he claimed that the elevator scared him. So I don't know if he was claustrophobic or he's just a dumbass. He's just a liar. They have sex, and he said Katie started to feel sick, so he left. When Katie was feeling ill, it was about 2.30 or 3, which could fit the timeline because Danica, remember, she called it 2.26, talked to two minutes with Katie and the unknown male. Stephen just happened to mention that when he was leaving Katie's room, there was a figure in the hall that saw him exit her room. Then Stephen states that he made it to Brian Hitch's couch at like 3.30 in the morning. The police hear him out as he tells his first, well this version of his story. And they're like, oh, so you were there. But how is it that you were there and you can't tell us any more of what happened to her? They keep pushing him more and more. And Stephen's like, this is my story. And, and he won't budge. He tells the same story three times. One of those times, though, he does admit that he is that voice on the phone talking to Danica. Well, now he has for sure placed himself in that room. They ask him how he got his prints on the hairspray bottle. And he's like, I don't know, maybe I picked it up when I was looking around the room. Then he admits that he stole a few things from their room. The police ask him again, are you sure that you were alone in that room with her? Danica did say that she heard another man's voice, but we're not sure if that is true. Um, Steven, if he had known that she said that, then I'm sure he would jumped on that bandwagon just to help throw suspicion from himself. It's like the police are trying to give Stephen a way out, but it's one of their techniques because it's supposed to help him talk more to tell more of the story if that other person was there. Like the idea of a second person was in the room, then he might tell them more details. So they're like, maybe there was somebody else and you're just scared of him and you, you feel like you need to take the fall. It normally is a great technique, but... The police get caught up in all the details and the ever-changing stories, and they end up believing Stephen in the end. So now he says that he was with Katie, they're having consensual sex, and his buddy Luke shows up. This is why I mentioned Luke in the timeline, by the way. I figured it'd come back to him. Yeah. When Luke arrived, Stephen said that he asked Katie if he could join in and they could have a threesome, and Katie said no which apparently made Luke violent and he started to hit Katie, which is not a far stretch because we know Luke has a history of assault. 
Luke then begins to start to rape Katie. And Stephen is just so shocked by Luke's actions that he leaves. And this, is, this is Stephen's story? Yes. Okay. And when he says that he left after Luke starts raping her, I just was like, are you fucking kidding me? But at the same time, I'm like, you're going to let somebody just rape a woman and you're not going to say anything or call police? You know He's what I mean? telling the story to get it off his back. I'm just saying, though, that just like irritated me. You're just going to leave Oh yeah. while that happens. So according to Stephen, Luke is left alone in the room with Katie and doesn't know what happened next. Stephen thinks he's being real sly, right? Giving police this other guy and telling them of what he saw. But really, what he's doing is giving himself away. Because his initial story was the consensual one and Katie was fine, just a little sick when he left. Now he's giving reasons why she has markings, which the police never told him in the first place. So Stephen already knew that Katie was beaten before any of these stories were even told in the interrogation. Trying to sell more of his story, Stephen decided to add in that Luke was the one who wrapped the blanket or the sheet around the sprinkler. Again, we know that's true. And Stephen said that he watched Luke spray Katie down with a hairspray. Again, we know that's the accelerant. In this version, this is when Stephen leaves the room. Unlike before, when he said he left while Luke was raping Katie, this version, they decide... Yeah, but still his fingerprints are on the spray too, so... Well, I'm getting to that. So after he tells this version, they bring Luke in for questioning, and they let Stephen go. Come on, campus police. I know. Luke, when he is brought in, just thought this was in connection to the domestic violence call from earlier in the day when he was whooping on his girlfriend. He had no clue about the events of Katie or that his friend Stephen had been throwing him under the bus. Luke is like, wait a minute, gives his timeline, the one that I said earlier, the one that we have evidence proving he was not there. It is like they ignored it because the police decide to ask him why he was in Hugh Poland and he's like, where? They try to scare him and say they found his prints and his DNA in the room and he's like, no, you didn't. I wasn't there. Then they told him, well, we have you on the security tape and he calls their bluff and he says, well, let's see it. Luke never gave in. He never changed his story. Even though there's no physical evidence, they go off Stephen's account and arrest Luke for first-degree murder and get a warrant for his DNA. The result from some of the items come in, like the fingerprints from the hairspray bottle, and they come back to Stephen's, and only his, not Luke's. But it was Luke who sprayed Katie, according to Stephen. The police had had a warrant to search Stephen's residence, which is his grandmother's house, and while searching, they find his shirt, and it had poo on it, and that will match Katie. Eventually, they come across the jewelry and the lot next door, and the jewelry will match those items that Katie owned. The DNA results came in from the rape kit, and lo and behold, it matched... Steven! I thought you were going to say his name, so I pointed uh, at you. Steven! Steven! They bring Steven in for more questioning. Let the storytelling begin yet again. Police tell him about all the evidence that comes back to him. There is no denying that Stephen did, did it all. Stephen decided that it was time to tell the actual truth and that what really happened during those morning hours of the 4th. Oh, so story number five. Let's go. Right. He said that when he arrived, Luke was already there raping Katie and his DNA's not found because he used a condom and then he took it with him. Luke then threatened Stephen and his family in order to force him to also rape Katie, to use the hand sanitizer, and to spray Katie. Luke made Stephen sodomize Katie, hence the poo on his shirt. It was actually Luke who spoke to Danica on the phone. Stephen wanted to stop him and stop what he was being forced to do, trying to be the hero, but he was just too scared of Luke. Besides, he thought he was holding a knife the whole time which is creating a reason for Katie to have puncture wounds on her neck. Stephen then goes on to say that it was Luke who lit Katie on fire. For whatever reason, the police and the prosecution agreed this must be the truth. 
The prosecution offers Stephen a deal to turn as a state witness, testify against Luke at the trial, and he would receive life imprisonment without the possibility of parole instead of being given the death penalty if found guilty. But what the we're about heck? to find out what happens. What is happening? Right. Luke goes on trial. It's held in Owensboro because the publicity of the case in Bowling Green was too much. So they go about an hour away. When they finally go to trial, they will use Stephen and some inmates who claim that while they were in jail with Luke, he confessed to them. Apparently, Luke told three separate inmates who he did not know what he did to Katie. And of course, they all lied. Stephen is horrible on the stand, too, by the way. He was destroyed by Luke's defense, which we all knew was going to happen. Stephen, all his thousands of versions of events. Luke, even though he's not like the greatest human on earth, he had good character witnesses, one of which told a story about Stephen and how he set a car that he stole on fire. During the trial, investigators had to admit under oath that they never checked out Luke's alibi. When Luke was put on the stand, he told the same story as always. And the prosecutor was like, well, there's no physical evidence tied to you because the sprinkler washed it away. Yet Stevens wasn't, so this made no sense. There was plenty of physical evidence that was not washed away. The defense had brought in a professor of forensic science as one of their expert witnesses, and he said, more or less, that water isn't going to selectively wash away just one suspect's evidence. We know the DNA survived. We know the fingerprints remained on the bottle. But also, Katie had strands of hair in her hand that survived the water. Thankfully, the jury was not as easily convinced as the police and prosecution. In less than three hours, they would all agree that Luke is not guilty on all charges. Stephen still had his deal, so he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He's ended up with seven charges against him. Murder, first-degree rape with serious physical injury, first-degree sodomy with serious physical injury, first-degree complexity arson, first-degree robbery, first-degree complexity rape, and first-degree complexity sodomy. The Autry family would sue the school for not properly securing the dorm hall, and they are giving $200,000. I mentioned earlier how they made changes to their security. Western Kentucky actually implemented these new security features just eight days after Katie's murder, and they created a campus safety task force. So something good did come out of all of this, I, I guess you could say. Luke still wasn't the best guy around. He just didn't murder or rape Katie. He would go on to commit some more petty crimes. His last known a residence is somewhere in Texas. Katie was a beautiful young woman with her whole life ahead of her, and she will never be forgotten by those who loved her. Her name is known on the campus of Western Kentucky University, and it will be forever, I'm sure. To me, what makes what happened to Katie even worse is the fact that she was doing everything right. It's not like she was out on the town. She stayed close to home with friends, and she wasn't with strangers. She had a sober driver who made sure she got home. She went to her room. She was supposed to be safe in her own bed. Her case really shows that victim blaming is real because the police, the prosecution, and even the president of Western Kentucky try to make it her own fault. Her case also brings light to rape culture, and that is a real thing. Us as women really need to pay more attention. And if it happens to you, don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to, that the police won't believe you because you were drunk or whatever the situation was. Katie was never given the chance to face her attacker. We can only hope that she's resting in peace knowing her death brought change to the world. And that is the case of Katie Autry. So Man, That's sad, and I do have questions. So I, I made a couple of questions up myself. Like, like how he wasn't seen, how did he know what room? I'm sure these would be like yours too. Like how? How did he know, right? And you said Danica heard two voices. 
She says she heard two voices. Maybe she, was she mistaken or what? I think she could have been. Yeah, I mean, if she's talking on the phone while she's at a party and it's loud, who knows? Because Stephen never said anybody else was in the room until they gave him the idea yeah. that someone else was in the room. So this is my theory for the 26-minute gap. Because we know that Katie was dropped off between 1.30 and 2. I'm leaning closer to the 2 o'clock mark because of the phone call coming in at 2.26. I think that Stephen doesn't enter right away after Katie because eyewitnesses confirmed she was alone. You know, Ryan says she went alone. The RA says she was alone. I have two scenarios. Either he walked around the building and tried a side door and it was unlocked. Or... He went in through the front and the RA had went to the bathroom or was distracted or something like that that so gave him the chance to get in. That front door is open to the public? I assume so. Huh. That's why they have a staff member there to check people in. Still. So while there was the distracted RA or the side door, I think he slithered in. Uh, he, I don't think he knew where Katie's room was because no one ever said she was in the car. And she goes, I'm in room 214. Ryan never said she said it. He never says that she said it. So I think that 26-minute span from her entering to that phone call was him going around the first floor of the dorm and looking for her and then taking the stairs and going up and looking for her there. I think he probably tried doorknobs along the way to see if any were unlocked. I feel like because she was drunk that maybe when she got back to her room, she didn't close her door completely. Or the door was wide open and she had like flopped on the bed. So maybe when he got to the second floor, he said, ah, there she is. So I think that maybe he paused outside for just a few minutes to make sure no one was coming, whether it was another person that lived on that floor or her roommate. And then he entered, closed the door, and it just happened to be the time that Danica called. Because 26 minutes from her entering to him coming in and closing the door and being heard on the phone 26 minutes is a long time. So what was he doing? Was he just chilling outside her door, which he had to find? So that's why I think the 26 minutes was him looking for her dorm room. Yeah, that makes sense. And I wonder if each dorm room has their own bathroom. I don't or know. if there's like a public bathroom for a group of dorm rooms and maybe she had was out in the hallway about to go to the bathroom that's or something. A, and that's a good idea too. Something. Who knows? Yeah, she could have gone to the room, settled down, and was like, oh, I'm going to pee or throw up. Or brush my teeth or something. I don't know. And then he saw her go back in. That's a good thought, too. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't. I don't know how their dorms are built, which they could be built differently now, too, than they were back then after they got remodeled. So they put in cameras now? I'm sure there's more cameras, but... There wasn't cameras before? There was... There I don't know if the police were just lying in general, saying there were cameras yeah. to Luke... But everybody that said they saw Luke was, you know, an eyewitness. So, I don't know. But it's very <laughs> sad. Very horrible. A great suggestion, Erica. Thanks. <laughs> well, at our dorms, we had, I mean, you had to use your car to get in to the front. So mm -hmm. Maybe they just weren't but, I mean, up to date. Or there's people coming in and he just slipped right behind them. Who knows? Yeah, like the like the RA was distracted. Maybe a group had entered in before him or something caught her off guard. Yeah, because and... that would be really easy to do. Mm-hmm. Man, that is a terrible story. And I didn't, it's not even me. I was recommended. Mm. But I hope I did it justice. It was a lot to go through. You did. All right. Well, that wraps up episode 27. Thank Woo. you, Megan. Oh, you're welcome for your depression. Yes. We will be back Thursday with a bonus episode for you guys. So stay we tuned. Didn't, we didn't do it last week because yes. we had... So we had our ice storm a week ago today, and it's fucking 70 degrees today. So strange. Our weather is odd. So we didn't record last week because... We had ice, and our guest drives a terrible car. <laughs> yeah, that thing wasn't going to make it. So, until then, stay local, shop local. Murder local. <laughs>